0: Hello right, and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Mercy Ascott. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I welcome Dr. Kevin Smith to the podcast. Today we are discussing salivary gland pathology. Kevin is a surgeon with expertise in head and neck surgery, mouth cancers, skin cancers, otorhinolaryngology, salivary gland pathology, thyroid and neck lumps. He works both at Auckland Head & Specialist Service at Mercy Ascot and at White Matter DHB. Kia ora, Kevin, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, how are you going, Louise? Thanks for having me on.
0: So today we're discussing conditions that affect the salivary glands. I wonder, Kevin, if you could give our listeners a quick refresh on the salivary gland anatomy, please.
1: When we talk about salivary glands, um, we normally categorize them into the, the major and the minor salivary glands. And in essence, the minor salivary glands are just little clusters of mucoid saliva-producing cells that line the whole of our mouth and throat. And they, they give us our background lubrication that allows us to talk comfortably and, and just kind of function on, on a minute-by-minute basis. The major salivary glands are what most people sort of think about in terms of, of the types of pathology that we're going to be covering today. Um, they're paired structures. We, we have six of them, the protids, the submandibular glands, and the sublingual glands. And they produce the on-demand rush of saliva that we need when we're preparing to, to chew a meal. So the minute you start to smell food or think about your, your breakfast, you automatically start to stimulate those saliva glands and, and get that saliva ready. The parotid glands are the largest, they're located on our face in front of the ear, and uh, their job is to produce a mostly watery type of saliva that helps to dissolve food molecules and and start the the initial um, sort of dissolution and digestion um, process. They're quite rich in amylase. And then the submandibular and sublingual glands, they also produce a more mucoid saliva, which is really useful for allowing our tongue to shape the food bolus, which then it means that we can flick food to the back of the throat and initiate the swallow reflex.
0: Great. It's a great refresher. Thank you. So, when someone presents with salivary gland pathology, what are the most important questions to ask them?
1: Well, our audience really, they're, they're sort of much more expert on the metabolic causes of salivary disease. You know, you'll all be familiar with patients who um, have systemic autoimmune conditions or are diabetic or have chronic health issues relating to problems like um, alcoholism. I think it's really important to, to kind of take that overview of a patient because quite often um, that will point you in the, in the direction of a, of a metabolic issue. So if you've got the patient who's got a, a chronic, slow enlargement in, in the salivary gland, you really do want to be thinking about that metabolic screen as, as your sort of initial Uh, approach. You also want to look at whether this is something which is localized to just one particular gland or involves multiple glands. You want to know whether there's been a pre-presentation debility or illness that might point you into one of the infectious causes. And then if you're kind of starting to narrow things down on a particular gland having dysfunction, you might ask about things like an altered or a foul taste in the mouth and how how often the, the symptoms present. Particularly important is the uh, relationship of salivary swelling to meals. So we we talk about a mealtime syndrome when we're dealing with obstructive glandular pathology. So the saliva can't drain, patient develops swelling, often with some discomfort. It's not typically severe pain, although it can be if they have a complete obstruction. But that that sort of mealtime pattern of symptoms slowly progresses over time as the obstructive pathology gets worse. And that's a really good discriminator in whether you're dealing with a chronic obstructive psiladenitis picture or a more acute process within the gland. So that's typically the the sort of screening questions that I ask. You'll know if you've got someone in front of you who's unwell, febrile, with facial cellulitis, that this is a little bit different. This is probably an acute infective uh, problem. The history doesn't tend to be particularly sudden because often patients might have a nonspecific viral prodrome which leads to, to some debility. But then as their oral intake decreases or dehydration gets established, their saliva flow and the self-flushing properties of the major salivary glands starts to falter. And they'll get bacterial migration up into the oral cavity and develop you know, the, the typical uh, signs of a systemic or localized bacterial infection. So high fever, quite severe pain, redness, and marked swelling. in the more chronic-type patients, you, you probably want to spend a bit of time exploring associated symptoms for evidence of uh, autoimmune-type pathology. So things like um, arthralgias, unusual rashes, and obviously dry eyes and dry mouth, which points to, to uh, the sort of classic autoimmune um, disease of the salivary glands themselves. And it's useful to know if they've had any previous head and neck treatment which might impact on the function of their salivary glands, be it surgery or radiation therapy.
0: So we move on to examine our patient. What's important to consider when we're examining them?
1: So the the sort of general examination, you want to know, are they unwell? Do they have a fever? Are they tachycardic? Do they look dehydrated and septic in front of you? The next step when you're sort of focusing more on a gland-by-gland approach, I think, is be systematic. Some salivary conditions are only ever existing in isolation, but some tumours can be multifocal. Um, We might talk a little bit later about, the Warthin's tumor, which is the classic benign tumors of smokers, you often get them on several locations within the gland and they can be bilateral. So it is important not to just focus on the, the swollen gland or the lump that the patient's noticed and, and have a good feel around the face and neck area, focusing on the, the sort of pre upper neck, submandibular regions. That's going to point you in the direction of, does this patient have lymphadenopathy? Is it localized to one side or, or a more generalized process? I always like to take a step back when I meet a patient, and they want to immediately sort of show me their lump and get me to focus on their lump and just look at their overall face. And the reason for that is that you know some of the red flags about the type of process that you might be dealing with with the saliva gland relates to the cranial nerve functions in the area. So you want to see, you know, does their face move normally? Is it symmetrical from side to side? If they volunteered something, you might even test facial sensation at that stage to see if there's any evidence of a trigeminal dysfunction with a large mass. Um, so you do have to sort of vary your, your examination approach a little bit depending on who's sitting in front of you. But with that overview and then directed exam of the external face and neck, I'll then transition to look inside the mouth. And something that I actually only really started to appreciate relatively late on in my, in my training was the importance of trying to get saliva flow out by massaging or milking a gland. I think this is something which diagnostically is really underutilized, and including by myself for many years. But in essence, by stroking the affected saliva gland with the flat of your hand and looking at the draining orifice inside the mouth, you can see, do I have any saliva flow? Is it nice, clear, and watery? Did I just get a little lump of what looks like mucus or snot out that suggests that there's a chronic sort of turbid thickening of their saliva? Have I got pus coming out, which is suddenly then you know, really made it clear to me that I'm dealing with someone who's got a sur- superative keratitis. You want to know are there any ulcers, masses inside the mouth near these salivary gland openings that might be causing an, a, a secondary obstruction? And you'll get an idea about the overall hydration level of the mouth. You know, until you've seen someone with it's it's quite hard to appreciate how dramatic that dryness is. A lot of patients talk about a little bit of dry mouth here and there. They try and put two and two together in the context of their symptoms. But when you see the dry mucosa of a Sjogren's patient, where it's shiny, it looks brittle, it may have surface excoriations, your tongue depressor sticks to the lining of the mouth because there's just no hydration there. It's, it's really obvious. And that can be really powerful in pointing you towards the, the correct diagnosis.
0: That's a great tip, actually, massaging the salivary glands. i oh, store that one away. Thank you. So we're going to discuss a couple of cases. Um, The first one is of a 30-year-old male who presents with cyclical gland swelling. He has pain associated with his meals. He feels that he isn't producing as much saliva. So from this history, you're wondering about a salivary stone. Can we talk about this for a moment? How common are salivary stones? The answer
1: is they're probably a lot more common than we appreciate. A lot of people have kind of tried to study the prevalence of salivary stones in the general population versus comparing it to the incidence of of acute disease. And there are estimates which range suggesting that up to 1% or 2% of people actually have salivary stones. However, the vast majority of those are asymptomatic. Somewhere in the region of a quarter to half a percent of patients only will have uh, symptomatic salivary obstruction, secondary to stone disease. But because we're dealing with large populations that we look after, actually it's a common problem. So you'll certainly come across these patients um, with a reasonable frequency.
0: And given, are some glands affected more than others?
1: The type of disease process, the obstructive disease process that affects the gland um, differs. In general, it's the submandibular glands just below our jawbones, which are most commonly affected by stones. We think the reason for that is that the anatomy and the function of the glands kind of makes them a sitting target. So I mentioned earlier that the submandibular glands tend to make a more mucoid saliva. They also drain uphill against gravity. So they're draining from this location here to the sublingual papilla, which you will see when you look either side of the frenulum in the floor of mouth. So that's an area where you also tend to have saliva pooling in the mouth. and So you'll potentially have food debris, bacteria, Um, other processes which can interact with that ductal opening. And because these are glands which are on demand, they do produce a a sort of a low rate of constant secretion, but it's certainly nowhere near in the order of magnitude of the flow that you get when that gland is stimulated. They're relatively stagnant. So we've got a, a gland which is producing a thicker mucus. It's having to flow uphill. If there's a little bit of dysfunction in that saliva production and it's not flushing the bacteria that are sitting around the orifice, we think that's probably one of the, the sort of initial instigators in, in stone formation. The physiology of the different major salivary glands also differs a little bit in terms of their um, enzyme constituents and salts. And we think that it's probably a combination of the fact that the submandibular um, salivary production is a little bit more salt-rich and mucoid. It means that if you get bacterial penetration into there, You then start to form these little microliths, which are basically the bacteria adhere, and they secrete biofilm around them to make them stick to surfaces. Salts can precipitate into that, and you then get this lamella buildup over a period of time of the stone itself until it reaches a a size where it's starting to to become symptomatic. So we don't see that as often. Only about 30% of salivary stones present in in the parotid glands um, because they're draining downhill much larger flow, much more watery saliva. I think they're just better at flushing, flushing anything that, that gets into the ductal system out.
0: And why are some people more affected by stones? What's happening here?
1: Again, we don't know. It's probably one of these interplays between, is there any underlying gland dysfunction? You know, we can measure salivary flow rates, but that's probably quite a crude measure of how well a salivary gland functions overall. And we we know that there will be a a sort of a spectrum in physiology. So I think occasionally you've got a clear persistent trauma can lead to distorted anatomy, damage to the ductal system, impaired salivary drainage. Um, You've got underlying health conditions which might contribute. Diabetics might be more prone to dehydration or not being able to handle any sort of bacterial colonization and clear it. Their innate immunity is affected by the chronic disease process, so maybe they get more bacterial penetration. You see factors such as age coming into play. So we know that the elderly are more at risk of getting obstructive problems, and it's probably because they have decreased salivary flow because their physiology alters with time. So it's likely to be multifactorial in the vast majority of patients. What's interesting is that we don't see someone who has stones in one major salivary gland frequently develop them in another gland. So what that tells me is that probably the gland function is at the heart of it. And it's probably going to be a secretory flow thing that that we can't measure or quantify very well.
0: So you mentioned salivary flow rates, but uh, investigations is something we should be considering in primary care?
1: It will vary depending on where your practice environment is, because one of the, the sort of sad health inequities that we see in New Zealand is that there is a really big regional difference in terms of where how you can access investigations or even therapy for, uh, for salivary problems. I think an ultrasound is a really excellent initial screening tool. And I would say that for the audience, that should be your go-to for patients coming in with significant problems that you think might be salivary. Ultrasounds aren't perfect. They'll probably miss somewhere in the region of 20 to 30% of, of small salivary stones. So. You know, the fact that the sonographer or radiologist doesn't document whether a stone is present or not doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't consider referring that patient on. But it does allow you to triage the urgency of that referral. It screens for, is there an underlying neoplastic process? Ultrasound in the right hands is really good at showing signs of chronic silent and due to autoimmune conditions. And if the, the sort of the, the main thing that you're looking for on, on the ultrasound is that if there's significant obstruction the sonographer or radiologist will see ductal dilatation, even though they might not see the cause of that. So that really helps to point you in the direction of an obstructive process. In some areas, you know, or if you have patients who have private insurance, you know, an option is to to refer them to a sort of one-stop type of salivary clinic, which we offer at Mercy Ascot, because we know that actually that ultrasound is probably the lowest yield of our investigations. We want to look at more complex things such as, CT, MRI, or even a, an investigative procedure such as silendoscopy, where we look into the ductal system. And each has their place. It depends really on the, the patient's pattern of symptoms, the severity, whether there's an infective overlay when they present, and whether I suspect a stone or a stricture. So an MRI silogram is, is a replacement for the old fashioned silogram. So basically, if you were an ENT, SHO, 10 years ago, you would often get phone calls from the radiology department where they would ask you to go and try and put a little cannula into the salivary opening so they could flush them, die through. No one knew what they were doing. The NTSHO didn't know, the radiologist didn't know, and most of the time you didn't get a sensible answer. So the MRI salogram, the way that works is it uses patients' own stimulated saliva flow as the contrast. So they basically give them some vitamin C tablets or lemon sherbets to suck on to stimulate the saliva flow. And then do a bunch of sequences where they can dynamically see how the, the flow changes. So that's been a, a really positive step. I don't think that our audience would be able to access that sort of specialist investigation very early. But what that, the ultrasound does is really sends them in the direction of being able to make a case for the referral to see a specialist in the public system or helps to, to kind of gauge the urgency of how soon they, they sort of uh, advocate for getting their patient assessed. If you've got a large stone sitting underneath the, uh, the papilla of the tongue, patient's really obstructive and painful. They need to go to an A&E and be referred to the ENT docs on call because often you can just make a little cut, release the stone, and that patient's problem is solved. They've got stone-like debris and mucoid plugs further back in their gland. They can wait until they go and see someone in the outpatient who can organize more advanced investigations um, through the appropriate sort of health pathways. You know, are blood tests useful? Generally not unless you suspect that someone's got an underlying systemic problem, an autoimmune problem, or there's, there's a sign of, you know, one of these, um, something like HIV, which can cause chronic salivary disease. So I tend not to rely very much on, on those investigations unless I'm screening for something like Sjogren's. That's the main reason I would send someone for blood tests. You guys know when someone's infected and unwell, you know, you don't need a CRP or a full blood count to tell you that you'll probably have a good idea from the history, whether they've got something metabolic going on, such as diabetes. It's that getting them through that that initial scan really helps you to sort of start to nail in the cause of their obstructive pathology.
0: So you've touched on some of the management, but I wonder if we can talk about that a little bit more now. So when are we referring? What are our priorities? And what is the management? What are our patients expecting to have happen?
1: I think it really needs to be symptom driven. I do see patients who present having had a one-off episode of obstructive saladenitis, and sometimes they'll they'll kind of report a history of you know passing a little gritty, yellowy stone into their mouth, which suggests that their problem has resolved. I'd still want to get an ultrasound to look at their gland to make sure that they're not harboring other problems further back. But if I've got a relatively normal examination, a history of a one-off episode that that has sort of self-resolved. And they've not had any of the sort of milder chronic mealtime syndrome type pictures over time, I'll counsel that patient that actually a lot of the interventional stuff that we do has a low but real risk of causing harm. And if it's a one-off episode, I don't necessarily go chasing a problem. I just counsel them about you know what are the things that they need to look out for that signal that the problem's coming back. I'll usually tell them that if they do ever get another episode where they're starting to swell and get pain to you know, be really keyed up to get to their GP sooner rather than later, get some antibiotics prescribed um, to sort of deal with the sort of secondary infection that usually um, leads to them presenting and progressing um, and getting back in to to see me in a specialist environment, wherever that might be. It's the patients who've got a multiplicity of episodes that you really are going to gear your, your sort of investigative and treatment efforts on. Because... The reality is that operating on a lot of the salivary glands, the traditional open approach has carried significant morbidities. Facial obvious scars, contour defects in the face from removing protid or, or submandibular tissue, and potential cranial nerve dysfunction. You know, at simple parotidectomy, if you kind of look through the surgical literature, people report uh, certainly temporary facial weakness rates in the order of about 10% but permanent rates in the order of one or 2%. So there's a real morbidity to an open parotid operation. For the submandibular gland, if you excise the gland, they've got about a 1% chance of having a numb tongue afterwards. Um, they've got about a 5% chance of having a, a weakness of um, depression of the lower lip. And it's much lower, but they do have a risk of hypoglossal dysfunction. You know? Fortunately, you don't see that very often unless you're dealing with a uh, malignant process. Um, but it is reported in the literature very wildly. And when I looked at the literature about, you know, what kind of drives open salivary gland surgery, I found that it's not tumours. The leading cause of um, parotidectomy worldwide is chronic inflammation. It's obstructive sialadenitis because people haven't had other tools for dealing with it. So you're exposing patients to potentially quite morbid treatments. You need to make sure that they are there for the right reasons. So in the right patient who's describing chronic recurrent symptoms that are impacting on quality of life, the first thing I want to know is how bad their symptoms are. And I use a systematic questionnaire. I think the one I use was developed at the University of Stanford. And I get all my patients to do it before treatment, with an exacerbation, after a sort of conservative medical treatment or observation period, after my surgery, because I want to know, are the things that I'm doing actually helping my patients? So I use that symptom questionnaire both to help me set a threshold for intervention, but also to track the the hopefully positive effects of, of the interventions. And I think that's really important because if you if you don't audit what you do, you can easily fool yourself that you're helping rather than harming. I think where my practice is different, perhaps to so a lot of other places in New Zealand, is that I've been trained in something called cylindroscopy, which is a procedure where you can either you can use miniaturized telescopes to look into each of the the sort of four major ducts the protid and submandibular ducts and you can diagnose and manage problems this isn't something that I was trained in very much as a registrar because at that time there was one center in the whole country that was doing it and I was lucky enough that I I went there for three runs and kind of got experience there but it's something I had to develop when I was overseas in London i think there's about three people that I know of in Auckland, who do salintoscopy? I don't really know of anyone else nationally. So, it kind of that comes into our sort of health inequity that that I kind of feel quite passionately about. It's just not fair that someone's potentially getting a gland removed for something which might be solvable through another route. With salintoscopy, we can we can basically salvage in the order of about eighty to eighty five percent of glands. So, you know, if you kind of put that through a sort of health, economic, and quality of life analysis, it would win hands down. But unless you can find me, someone in the ministry who's willing to listen, I'm not going to hold my breath. So, you know, that's really what I, I think about. I think about what, is, what treatment am I proposing? How morbid it is? Do I have a minimally invasive option for this patient? Or is their disease too far gone or too complex to, to kind of manage from that? And at the heart of it, you have to put the patient. Is there symptoms that drive you to, in terms of your decisions to treat?
0: Thank you. Yeah, that sounds fraught. Uh, and health inequity is something that we're always trying to balance up, isn't it? So, yeah, thank don't you. For that. So other causes of silent adenitis, what do we need to be thinking of, particularly thinking acute versus chronic pathologies?
1: Probably the second most common is, is stricture. And again, we don't really know what causes um, ductal stricture. We know it's probably more associated with autoimmune type problems. You see it more with patients who've had recurrent infections, and it's a little bit chicken and an egg. You sometimes see stricture coexisting with salivary stones, and you wonder which came first. I don't think we're ever going to answer that. Stones are much more common. They account for about 70% of obstructive episodes, strictures for about 30%. But it's strictures together with what we call uh, mucus plugs. So there's this concept where actually if you have Uh, Until cylindoscopy was developed about a decade or 15 years ago, people didn't even know these plugs really existed inside the ductal system. But they're really thick little collections of, of fibrin and mucus and debris that are in essence acting like a little stone or a little plug. And they're often mobile within the ductal system and impact at different times in different areas. And if they impact in an area of stricture, someone will tend to be more symptomatic. I don't think there's anything good in the history which helps you to differentiate between the two. It's really down to investigations. And that's why scans can and cannot be helpful. So CT scans are pretty good for showing your calcified stone. they will miss about 15% of stones which are too small or uncalcified. The MR sialogram is really good for showing dynamic flow and stricture, but it will often miss stones as well. And then sialendoscopy, I think it's Worldwide, it's kind of becoming regarded as the gold standard in investigation, you know, because you directly see what's going on. You can identify stricture and dilate them, or you can see stones and fish them out, or you can see mucus plugs and fish them out, or you can put steroid in, directly into a diseased gland and try and improve its function. And all of that has a, has a role in, in the different patients. You then kind of get into, those are probably the, the sort of two major causes of obstructive cytokinitis. You're going to have small... Percentage things like a tumor in the oral cavity lining, which has caused obstruction. You know, that's uncommon. But I saw a patient about three weeks ago that operated on who had a large buccal cancer that he just hadn't noticed until his face swelled up. So, you know, uh, I think we we often think, how can this guy or gal not have noticed that this is fungating tumor inside the mouth? But if you've got someone with poor oral hygiene who's got fractured teeth and they're used to biting their cheek and traumatizing things. They might not notice, you know, they might not have the same attention to oral hygiene that you and I do or in self-inspect or, you know, have that, that health literacy. So, you know, you've always got to examine the mouth. We covered that near the start. I think it's really important to have a look inside the mouth and make sure that you don't have anything else like that. Those are the sort of, you know, recurring acute Q-type sort of presentations. And the chronic ones, you know, the, the main one is going to be uh, Sjogren's disease. And the clues to that will come with autoimmune associations. So Sjogren's is not necessarily just primary, often goes with rheumatoids, SLE, or the other sort of autoimmune disease that presents to you guys. And that's when you kind of start thinking about, uh, so you don't have a classic obstructive picture, but you've got someone who's got rumbling, dysfunction. You need to then start looking at the blood test to try and screen out, is this something that can be treated here? Can I send this patient to a rheumatologist who's going to go, yeah, look, you know, I can try this. Steroid-sparing agent in you, and we'll see if it has an effect. It's it used to be that for Shogun's syndrome in isolation, patients were basically told to just lump it. And, you know, they were told, look, you're never gonna have a good quality of life. Your saliva is gonna dry up and get worse over time, and there's nothing that we can do for you. I, I don't think that's true anymore. I think involving a rheumatologist is really important because there is some evidence for some monoclonal antibody treatments which have been um, trial for these patients. And it, my understanding is it can make a dramatic improvement to their quality of life. You know? I think it's important also to, it's a little bit of a side note, but I often try and direct these patients to self-help groups and patient information websites because they actually, you know, they give people much more helpful day-to-day tools for managing their symptoms in a way that as clinicians, we might not appreciate the same things that kind of bother them. Um, you know, we kind of focus on the mechanics, and we forget about food uh, sort of consumption embarrassment in public because you know they struggle to chew, so they, their meals take longer they 're more labored they 're constantly drinking water the whole I guess the whole experience of a meal is very different for a, a chronic Shogun's patient who 's got advanced disease. I try and give them hope because actually most patients their disease it, it seems to burn out over a long period of time, and that 's probably because they initially, a lot of their symptoms are because of stricture and impacted mucus plugs because their saliva is turbid and thick. But actually, as it progresses, they kind of get so much glandular atrophy that they're not secreting saliva anymore. So they become less symptomatic in terms of the swelling and pain side of things. They also tend to learn to manage the sort of oral hydration around meals better. So I do try and kind of, you know, it's, it's really hard to be given a chronic diagnosis and be told, look, there's nothing that we can do for you. Um, I try and get everyone assessed where possible through a rheumatologist. You know, the, again, those health inequity sort of things that we have to deal with is that those patients struggle to get through a public hospital rheumatology uh, sort of referral grading system unless they've got other systemic disease uh, because they've kind of seen as low rent. But when the rheumatologists do see these patients, they often have really helpful strategies to help them with their disease. And the final thing is, again, if you're in a, in a sort of treatment um, setting where you know that regionally you can access something like cyan I think it's really um, worth exploring. The data isn't as good as uh, for dealing with mechanical blockage. So, you know, I always tell my, my sort of stone and stricter people, you know, I can save your gland 80% of the time. We can even repeat this if, if need be. If you get some benefit or you know, we need to do stage surgery, it's low risk, we can help you. I can't say that to a surgeon's patient. You know? What I have to do is quite carefully counsel them. That I say actually, it actually seems to be a growing evidence of body that putting high-dose steroid directly into those glands gives them symptomatic relief, and that relief can be extended, but we don't have the same quality of evidence. So it really comes down to a conversation about What's the morbidity of the procedure? What are the risks? What could I do? Could I make you worse? Potentially yes, but uncommon. What benefits might you see? I reckon you help about fifty or sixty percent of patients with shurgens with silentoscopy, and it tends to be uh, mainly that they feel they have improved saliva flow afterwards. So their mouth just feels moisture, more comfortable. Meals are easier. You know, they still get fluctuating swelling. Um, that doesn't go away because it's still you've still got a, a, an autoimmune process affecting the sort of glandular parenchyma, but it's suppressed. And most patients will who respond, the responders will get relief for about nine months to a year, which doesn't sound like a lot. But there seems to be evidence as well that after about three treatments, um, you stop treating people, and no one no one actually kind of honestly writes about this stuff. And it's going to be one of two things, actually. After a period of time, we've reached a plateau where the symptoms have improved to a level that they're tolerable, and they'll only come back if they really drop off that plateau. Or the other is you're not helping, so they stop trialing the procedure. And you know, I, I guess for me, that's why I'm, I'm trying to keep as much data as possible because I want to track these patients long term and try and come up with a, a sort of a, a more robust counselling process. You know, I don't want to do a procedure on someone if it's not going to help them.
0: And well, that's fascinating. Thank you. So we're going to move on to our um, second case. This is of a seventy-five-year-old female who presents with asymmetrical facial swelling and facial drop. Can we talk a little bit about salivary tumours for a moment? So, what is the most common salivary gland tumour?
1: So, you know, the audience might remember the rule of eighty percent because that's we stop learning after a certain age. So. You know, some old surgeon would have um, drilled us in this um, little um, adage, which is 80% of tumors are benign, 80% of them are located in the parotid gland, and of those, 80% of them are pleomorphic salivary adenomas. And then we kind of forget what we don't, depending on what we go on to do with the rest of our careers. But that holds true. Actually, the majority of tumors are in the parotid gland, and the pleomorphic salivary adenoma, the name kind of just denotes the fact that it's got quite a complex um, histological appearance. They are by far and away the most common tumor that we will see. And generally, they're not a problem. You know, it's a patient comes in you to see you with a, a slowly growing facial nodule. They know it's there, but they've ignored it for six months, a year, longer because it's not troubled them until they reach a threshold where someone nags them into coming to coming uh, to sort of get it checked out in your practice. And the sort of key there is the sort of slow history. And um, it's a benign tumor. You can't. The problem with pleomorphic adenoma is that you can get malignant change over time. The longer a pleomorphic adenoma persists, A, the larger it's going to get. I think the record for the biggest one I removed was about 15 centimeters, which was obstructing someone's airway because it developed. It had had surgery sort of historically by someone who left tumor behind and it just occurred over a 30-year period. And people kept waiting for this guy to die saying, oh, you're never going to you know, run into a problem with this because you're never going to live that long. And he kind of proved them very wrong and was obstructing his airway when, when he came to see me. So they can get neglected and massive. But most commonly, uh, the main issue with leaving them is that as they get bigger, surgery is going to get more complex. That tumor is going to contact more facial nerve branches. There's more branches which potentially are a risk of, of injury. And the malignant transformation, although it's not high, it's kind of estimated somewhere in the 5 to 15% over a 15-year period. So I normally say 15% over 15 years, because that's easier to kind of convey that message across. So again, if you've got a very elderly comorbid patient, you might not want to operate on them. If your, if your anesthetic is going to do them more harm than removing a small lump, then you sometimes just have to be pragmatic and, and accept that and observe it. But for most patients, these tumors are presenting younger in life, and they're going to become a, a sort of problem down the road. So that's how I approach um, pleomorphic adenomas, they're common, they're benign they will become an issue down the road. So in general, people should have surgery if they can. There is another sort of issue with tumors in general in the parotid gland, which is that because the, the sort of cytology is quite complicated, you've got a mix of ductal cells and epithelial cells and stromal lymphoid cells. Diagnosis through the traditional fine needle aspirate approach, it varies quite a lot from pathologist to pathologist or center to center. In bigger urban areas where you've got dedicated head and neck pathologists, that you know the the average pathologist can go and tap on the shoulder for second opinion, the accuracy of FNA is about eighty to eighty five percent. In regional centres where there's less expertise, it's quite significantly lower than that. So I never believe a needle biopsy telling me I've got a benign tumor until that specimen of the whole tumor is sitting on the pathologist's lab uh, table and they're kind of working through it, um, because. Quite often, even in very skilled hands, you can have errors. So I I would never want a sort of young patient to be counseled that, look, you can ignore this because that's not the truth. They could have a cancer that we just haven't diagnosed because, you know, the needle happened to go into the wrong part of the tumor and pull out the wrong cells. It's going to need management at some point. So they should be sent to see a specialist. But it is reassuring that actually when you're dealing with parotid tumors, which is what most of uh, the audience will be seeing, most of the time it's a benign pathology. There's another rule of thumb that I think is really important, which is the smaller the gland gets, the more likely that this is uh, benign, and no longer holds, okay? So a tumor in your submandibular gland has got about a 50% chance of being malignant. A tumor in your sublingual gland has got about a 70 to 80% chance of being malignant. So these are like massive red flags, salivary tumors presenting in the, the floor of mouth um, under the tongue. Or uh, in the submandibular gland should should always be referred for an assessment. Um, they're much more likely to be serious pathology. Uh, in all of those locations, um, sort of red flag symptoms sometimes can present quite late because um, these are exposed areas. In the sense that we touch our faces and necks all the time. In most salivary gland tumours patients notice themselves and then they bring them to your attention. It's not a case of you're doing an examination for something else and you notice a lump that they haven't noticed. Uh, I think. You know, the, the sort of ability to self-examine and the fact that we're always touching this area just means that as a general rule, disease in this area tends to present a little bit earlier than it might elsewhere in an occult location, you know, the sort of feeling that I have. Um, the, I guess the key is, uh, you know, my job is always to assume I'm dealing with a cancer until otherwise. I guess you guys have to deal with a much more complex playing field of, of gauging how much strength do I need to put to this referral? to really flag them concern. So the, the sort of examinations that we talked about earlier, cranial nerve involvement, facial numbness or lingual numbness, weakness of the tongue, weakness of the face, these are all really important discriminators um, that sort of uh, do help you screen a little bit on the urgency of the referral.
0: So Kevin, you have mentioned some red flags. So are there any that are more red flag than others? Any that we should really take note of? You've mentioned size and glands. Yeah. and facial uh, nerve involvement. Are there any others that we should consider?
1: Pain, you know, pain is a big one for me. So, you know, uh, it's really uncommon for a benign tumor to be causing significant discomfort. You just occasionally see it with a Warthin's tumor. So I touched on Warthin's tumors earlier that they sort of like, traditionally were felt to be more common in smokers, often bilateral and multifocal. And the theory was that there was something in the cigarette smoke, which dissolves up in the saliva. And causes this change and there was even argument about whether they were a genuine tumor or just an inflammatory lesion within the parotid glands where they usually presented because histologically they have these cystic components and also this lymphoid tissue around them i think the sort of consensus is with modern histopathology methods these are tumors there are genes which kind of get activated and consistently in them and they behave like a neoplasm but they sort of the main way that they tend to present is that someone gets an inflammatory exacerbation. Um, it swells and it's tender. Often they're treated with antibiotics and they respond very quickly, but the mass doesn't disappear itself. It's very rare, although they can be a little bit tender for them to be very painful. you know, Patients don't experience deep-seated neuralgic pain. So if you've got a patient with a facial mass who has a lot of distress, then that's a warning sign. Discrete mass, no signs of Regional inflammatory change that would point you towards a, a suppurative saladenitis, or an ultrasound that you've organised that shows a, a mass there, then that pain is a red flag. The sort of the last one to mention that like it's quite specific to the New Zealand healthcare environment is to do with the fact that actually we see so many patients with actinic skin damage. The most common malignancy in a parotid gland in New Zealand is a secondary metastasis from a, a facial cutaneous squamous cell cancer. They account for about 75 to 80% of the malignant tumors we see in the parotid gland. Um, they're much more common than primary salivary gland cancers. And you will all have hundreds of patients on your books with terrible, terrible skin because of you know, historical poor education around sun exposure. So. That's actually, you know, if you're seeing the patient, even if they don't have an obvious uh, malignancy, a, an obvious skin cancer, I mean, if they've got signs of cryotherapy, if they've got signs of scars from recent or, you know, excisions within the last 12 to 18 months, that might have been their primary and what you're dealing with now is a secondary tumor. So I think that's really important to kind of keep in the, the sort of forefront of your mind that Skin cancer is the main cause of, you, of my patient potentially having a procted tumor. Look, one other thing—it's—it's it's not something we see very often. Um, but beware the relapsing Bell's palsy. Okay, just—it um, doesn't exist. Bell's palsy is a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, everything that you were taught in medical school about you know um, timeframes for recovery, all that—it's—it's it's basically rubbish. You know. Um, Bell's palsy is something that you arrive at a diagnosis once they've had an MRI scan to exclude a skull based vestibular schwannoma or a parotid tumor. You know? and, and all patients who are, are, are having some form of facial weakness will need to be assessed. You, know? you might look, they don't feel a mass. Sorry, you don't feel a mass when you examine them. Their facial weakness is improving. Great. But they could still have a skull based tumor. So you know, they need a referral to, to be screened for that. I unfortunately, I see one or two patients every year that has had a fluctuating facial weakness that has been labeled as a Bell's palsy. And often they are, um, often they're younger people with actinic skin damage. Tends to be builders, okay? Where no one kind of, no one just thinks that this guy could have a cancer because they just seem too fit, too active, too well, okay? And they will have had a tiny little squamous cell cancer develop in the facial area, which will have um, basically started to track along either the sensory or motor nerves until they reach a large enough nerve to start to cause dysfunction. And as they progress, they get fluctuating weakness. So, you know, if a patient comes to you and you're seeing over a period of a few weeks, this decline, then improvement, then decline again, You've got to be really concerned that this is not, this is not just a, a sort of post viral phenomenon um, and, and flag the referral as urgent. Often these patients have seen a neurologist and they get a diagnosis because they go back nine months later and get a scan finally. So, you know, even experts in nerves in the field, they may be not aware of how much uh, actinic disease we see in our. And our practice here is head and neck surgeons. That, that, that kind of starts that way.
0: Gosh, those are fascinating practice points. Thank you. So to conclude our podcast today, are there some take-home messages, please, for our listeners?
1: it my pleasure. Um, I guess from the two different types of pathologies that we've looked at, if we take the sort of chronic obstructive silent at night, the, the sort of key take-homes would be always remember the mealtime syndrome because that pattern of uh, swelling, pain, and the, the sort of chronological recurrence associated with, with meals over time is really a strong indicator that they're dealing with, with a, either a stone or a stretcher. Try and find out about your practice environment. You know, are you in an area where your patients can access public hospital colonoscopy? Is there someone in private who's offering that? And uh, I said, refer accordingly. And when it comes to tumors, I don't want to kind of belabor the point, but I think, you know, yes, most tumors are, are benign. They should all be referred for a specialist assessment. An ultrasound is a really excellent initial screening tool that helps you to get them through the door of the public hospital grading. And the red flags that we talked about, I think they're key. If you have a patient who has significant pain, who has um, cranial nerve disturbance such as numbness or weakness, lingual numbness or weakness, um, they need an urgent referral. And never forget about um, skin cancer here in our, in our sort of lovely island, islands. You know, we just see so much actinic disease, and that's the leading cause of malignancy in the parotid gland. So consider metastasis. Um, you may not see the primary. If you've seen the skin damage, refer them on.
0: Thanks, Kevin. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points, please do. You can also find a list of resources on our website at goodfellowunit.org.